Welcome to this week's edition of Island Recast. For more information on Grand Memorial Presbyterian Church or Pastor David, please go to gmpc.org. One of my favorite contemporary authors, Stephen Lawhead, was once asked a question, are you a Christian writer or a fiction writer? I loved his response. He said, I am a Christian, and I am a writer, and sometimes I write fiction. I just appreciated that because so often we want to pigeonhole people uh, into certain boxes. We have this box theology that we, that we carry around with us, and it has not served us well. Rather than trying to determine what is and what isn't, our focus ought to be on pointing people to Christ. Ought to be. It, uh, it is a, an issue that the church has wrestled with uh, over these many, many years. It's an issue uh, that even God's people in God's Word uh, wrestled with. Uh, what's in, what's out, who are we, where are we, why are we? Indeed, there is nothing new under the sun. The controversy extended to deciding which books we are going to include in the Bible. Some didn't make it. Uh, if, you, if you have a Catholic background or uh, if you have a Catholic Bible, uh, you can open that Bible and just look at the table of contents and you will discover that there are books in, in that Bible that are not in, in our Bible. First and second Maccabees, not in here. The book of Judith, the book of Tobit, the prayer of Manasseh. Worthy reads, to be sure, but they didn't cut it when it came to the 66 books that comprise our Bible. 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. As the lists were being put together, some didn't make it. A book that is controversial, that is in our Bible, believe it or not, is the book of James. James is controversial. Up and through the Reformation, it was controversial. Martin Luther lobbied that it be excluded from scriptural canon. Now, why would Martin Luther say such a thing? He went on to actually say that the book of James is filled with nothing but straw. Well, we all know Martin Luther's famous stand and his discovery of what it meant to be saved by grace. 
And if there were a theme verse for Martin Luther, it would probably be from Ephesians. For, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? Our salvation is a gift. It is not a gift that we can purchase or earn. It's one that we merely receive. So he's reading through the book of James and he stumbles upon this uh, uh, section in the second chapter where James writes this, What good is it, my brothers, my sisters, if a person claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? (laughs) You show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith By my deeds. Faith without works is death. Yeah. So Martin Luther sees that and goes, heresy. He wants to camp out with with Paul. But what we need to understand is that they were having different conversations. They were having different conversations. The people that James is addressing are not the people that Paul was addressing. In his epistles, which is why we need to study the whole counsel of Scripture. We need to interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture. We need to recognize the context in which a statement is being made. Here's the deal. If you're clever enough, you can take bits and pieces of Scripture from here and from there and cobble it together to pretty much make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. But never forget this. That text, out of context, is pretext. Text, out of context, is pretext. So never read a single verse of Scripture. Always read it with the paragraph. And if there's something that you don't understand about the paragraph that you've just read, then read the entire chapter. And if there's something that you... And probably as 70, 80% of the questions that you have about a verse are going to be answered if you look at it in the context of the chapter in which it was written. But if you're still struggling, then read the whole book. And if you're still struggling after reading the whole book, then... In the beginning was God created and said, let there be light. The whole counsel of Scripture is essential for us, more so now than ever before. We need to know what the Bible says and how it teaches us to live out this faith that we have, to to be responsible with the gift of salvation that God has given to us. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to the book of James. We're going to be spending uh, uh, several weeks, several months, uh, working our way through the book of James. I thought I would take this morning as an opportunity to kind of introduce you uh, uh, to the book, to introduce you to the author of this book, and, and kind of set the stage for the, the, the people that... Uh, it's, it's always important to ask the question, who wrote the book, uh, to whom was it written, 
and why was it written? Who wrote it, to whom, and, and why? And so we have some of that here, but there's still, uh, there's still uh, some controversy. I, there, there's some people that just flat out live for controversy. And uh, not only is it to, uh, with regard to whether or not James should be included into the Bible, but who the author himself was. Who is this James who writes this book to us? And when you go through Scripture, you're going to come across, I think there's as many in the New Testament, as many as five different James, people named James. But three, three have kind of surfaced to the top, thinking that, okay, the author of this little epistle here was probably one of these three. Two of them were apostles, one was not. We, we, we all know about uh, uh, Peter, and, uh, Peter and James and John. Uh, uh, James and John were, were brothers, uh, no, uh, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah, were they twins? I don't know if they were twins, but anyway, they were known as the Sons of Thunder, and and actually, John became known as John the Greater because there was an there were or James uh, James became known as James the Greater because in the list of the twelve apostles there was another James, son of Alphaeus, who was known as James the Lesser. Well, we don't think James the Lesser wrote the, this book, and probably not James the Greater. He was one of the early martyred uh, disciples of Jesus. About 42 uh, A.D., uh, Herod had him killed, and he got such uh, uh, support from the crowd that he immediately went out and arrested Peter, planning on killing him the next day. Uh, but there was a miraculous uh, intervention there, uh, and Peter lived to preach another day. So we don't think it was that James. But there is a James that we come across in the gospel who is the, mentioned as the brother of our Lord Jesus. Jesus had brothers? How, how can this happen? Well, the Bible tells us that when Mary and Joseph came together that, uh, that they, they, they stayed apart until after the birth of the child. Jesus is referred to, bless you, Jesus is referred to as, uh, as the firstborn, Mary's firstborn. You have a first, that means that there's a second, there's a third, there's a fourth. So they're brothers and sisters that make their appearance in Scripture, and, and one of those is named James. And so the thought is that James is the author of this particular book. Now, it's interesting because when we encounter James in the Gospels, uh, he's not quite sure about his older brother at this point. In fact, Jesus is in a house. He's teaching away. There's huge crowds, and his, his mom and his siblings are starting to worry that, uh, that he's going to create problems for, for the community and for them. And so they try to take him out, and they, and, uh, out of the house, and so they send word in. And somebody comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus... Your, your, your mom and your uh, brothers and sisters are outside. They, they'd like to have a word with you. And, and Jesus says, well, who is my, my, my mother, my brother, my sister? But the one who does the word of God, the one who's obedient to the word. So th that's the only encounter that we have with this James in the Gospels. But Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he talks about uh, uh, the resurrection in the 15th chapter in just uh, beautiful, beautiful words. In fact, I've used the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians as a, sermon, a text for my Easter sermons on occasion. 
uh, as, he, as he talks about the importance of the resurrection. For what I receive, I passed on to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to Scripture, and then he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the, of the brothers at, at the same time, most of whom are still living today, so side note, you don't have to take my word for it. You can, you can still go find them that when, he, when Paul wrote this. Uh, though some have fallen asleep. And then, verse 7, chapter 15 of verse 7, 1 Corinthians. And then he appeared to James. And then to all the disciples. And last of all, he appeared to me. I, I kind of think that when, when Jesus appeared to his brother James post-resurrection, that the scenario was reminiscent of when Jesus encountered Paul on the road to Damascus. So Paul was just a little shaken. Uh, he had dedicated his life to fighting this new sect of Judaism called the Way. And so he's on his way to Damascus to take, uh, take people prisoner, throw them in prison, disrupt their lives. And Jesus meets him on that road it's safe to say that Paul was shaken to the core of his being. I, I think that's probably what happened post-resurrection when Jesus shows himself to his little brother. I, I, oops. I mean, it was literally a come-to-Jesus moment for James. And at that point, his life is transformed. Interestingly enough, the church... The first worshiping community gathered in Jerusalem. And as they were looking for leadership in that church, uh, the, 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 the obvious choices were uh, uh, Peter, James, and John. They declined. Uh, uh, history and, and tradition tells us that given the opportunity, they declined. They said, we, we, we have had enough honor in our lives to have been disciples with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Let this honor go to another. And so they selected James, the brother of Jesus, to be the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He came to be known as James the Just, and he was a thoroughly observant Jew who recognized that his brother was the promised Messiah. We need to remember that the early church was fundamentally Jewish and that the Gentiles were invited in later on. If you were with me through our time in the book of uh, Hebrews, you'll remember that at one point the author of Hebrews makes the declaration that this new covenant... God is making with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. We have been invited into that house. So in a sense, our spiritual roots, who we are, what we believe, how we live our lives, is grounded in that Old Testament covenant. More on that in a minute. James is addressing fundamentally a Jewish Christian community. 
and there were all kinds of issues that were swirling around uh, with regard to Judaism and the idea that their hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one. And, and, and now we're talking about Jesus as God and the Holy Spirit and God the Father and baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that just didn't sit well with the community. And so there were tensions. But there were also tensions that were introduced as the, as the, uh, as the Gentiles were being brought in. Because it's like, well, do we expect them now to become Jewish? Do we expect them to, to become uh, obedient to the law? And if not, why not? Well, salvation is not found in the law. And so there was this controversy, and you'll remember in the 15th, uh, uh, in the 15th chapter of Acts, it all kind of came to a head. Uh, and they came to the council of Jerusalem. And who headed that council? The very first council of the church? James. And after they heard Peter talking about how the Holy Spirit was falling on the Gentiles and how they were receiving the gifts of the Holy Spirit, it's like, okay, how do we approach this? And it was James who spoke up and said, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described how God first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. And so it's James who crafts the letter to be sent out to the Gentile believers. The apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us uh, without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said, so that we all agreed to choose some people to send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are saying. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood of the meat of, of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. That was James the brother of Jesus who writes this book that we're about to delve into. And being someone who is thoroughly oriented toward his Jewishness, James recognizes that there has to be an application of faith in our lives. And so as we work our way through the book of James, we're not going to read about the, about the crucifixion of the Lord. We're not going to read about the resurrection. What we're going to read about is conduct becoming a follower of Jesus. Conduct becoming a follower of Jesus. Not as a means to earn our salvation, but as an expression of our gratitude and our love for God. So we start at the beginning. That's always a good place to begin at the beginning. So here in chapter 1, I want to look at just the first verse with you this morning. James. We already know who that is. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. 
There it is. That's our opening. Simple, short, and to the point. Who is he? To whom is he writing? And why does he write? I get all that from that one verse. First off, who is he? How does he identify himself? Very simply, very humbly, very eloquently. James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he could have, he could have extrapolated that. He, he could have teased that out. He could have said, James, the brother of Jesus, come on, pay attention here, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, I've got some credibility here. You need to listen to what I have to say. Numbered among the apostles, even though I wasn't technically an apostle. He doesn't say any of that. He simply identifies himself, James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The two words that uh, I think we struggle with in that, uh, in that sentence. One is servant and the other is Lord. What does it mean to be a servant? I, I just... I, The, 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 the simplicity of, of, of the layout here is just, I think, brilliant. When you think servant, what comes to mind? First and foremost, for me, if, if one is going to be a good servant, the servant is going to be obedient. The servant is going to be obedient. And, 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 I, and I love the tie-in, and maybe I'm only making this in my own mind, but if I'm making it in my own mind, I still think it's a good tie-in. You know, we're going to celebrate communion here in just a little bit. And when Jesus instituted this sacrament uh, uh, amongst his followers, he did something very significant. He did something very significant that night that just shocked them to the core of their being. And why it should have shocked them so much is anyone's guess because it was a theme throughout his ministry. What did he do? He washed their feet. He washed their feet. That, that, was, a, that was a lowly task. In fact, if you had a Jewish servant in your household, you could not, it was against the law to compel a Jewish servant to wash your feet. Jesus washed their feet. <laughs> Pete, no, not going not to wash my feet. Hey, Pete, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part of me. Okay, let's have a shower. Jesus says, do you know what I've done? I've done the most menial task that you could probably conceive of. And I've done it willingly and I've done it joyfully. And if you want to be my disciples, then... This is the life that's for you, a life of a servant. And, you know, throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, they're, they're arguing amongst themselves, you know, which one of us is going to, you know, who's going to be greatest in the, kingdom of, uh, in the kingdom of God? And what does Jesus do? He pulls a child out. He says, you want to be great? Become like a child who recognizes their utter 
dependence upon the adults in their lives. The utter dependence that we have upon God. Jesus goes on to say, if you want to be first, be willing to be last. If you want to be great, be a servant of all. I think that's what we hear here in, in, in these verses. As James identifies himself. You can come in. You can come in and sit. I was too slow. <laughs> I think James is making that connection. I understand what my brother's talking about when he's talking about servanthood. And servanthood is first and foremost about obedience. But you know what else it's about? It's, a, it's about loyalty. It's about loyalty. And to whom is he a servant? The servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now holding those two uh, titles together uh, would have been tenuous in his time. Again, God is one. You're baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So to be able to hold those two in tension so that, so that the hearers and the, and the readers of this letter would know where James' loyalty lies. And it lies in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which, which brings up that, that, that second word. And how do we wrap our minds around lordship issues? You know, when we think of lords and ladies, you think of damsels and castles and knights and dragons and all that kind of, all that kind of stuff. It's hard for us in the, in the uh, land of the free, in the home of the brave, to wrap our minds around this idea of lordship. What does it mean for us to call Jesus Lord. Chuck Colson once said that if Christ's lordship does not disrupt our lives, does not disrupt our lordship, if Christ's lordship does not disrupt our lordship, then the reality of our conversion must be questioned. To call Jesus Lord is a commitment to obedience and to loyalty. And I think there's another element here, and it's humility. James, servant of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Humility. What does, uh, what does uh, Micah 6.8 tell us? What does God require of us? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And that's tough. I get it. That's difficult. Because we're all trying to prove something to somebody, even sometimes to ourselves. And to let go of that and trust God for the outcome is hard. I recognize that. But it's something that we must strive for. There is no place for arrogance in the life of a follower of Jesus. A servant is not afforded the luxury of arrogance. 
So yes, I'm to be a just person. That's me. But when it comes to you, I'm to love mercy. And then together walk humbly with God. Obedience, loyalty, humility. Wrapped up in the words, servant and lordship. To define who we are as followers of Jesus. That's who's writing this book. And that's what he wants us to understand. And to whom is he writing the book? To the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Well, who are these 12 tribes? And how long have they been scattered? How well do you know your biblical history? Probably the first scattering took place in 722 B.C. when the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. You could even pull it back and say that when Solomon died and the northern kingdom broke off from the south, that there was a little bit of a scattering. But certainly those ten tribes were scattered by the Assyrians, and where they went, no one knows. Interestingly enough, people that study human anthropology have come across civilizations and pockets uh, of, of, of communities that are totally isolated from other parts of the world that are thoroughly and completely Jewish in their worship. How does that happen? Because the tribes were scattered. The tribes were scattered again in 586 B.C. when the southern kingdom fell to the Babylonians. But they were picked up and, and transported to Babylon where they lived for 70 years until Cyrus came to power and allowed them to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But not everybody came back. There were some who were still scattered about. And if you'll remember in the book of Acts, it was shortly after Peter's initial speech that the persecution came and, the, and the, they were scattered. What happens when you scatter seeds? Things grow in unusual places. And now here we find ourselves brought into these tribes. We're a part of God's plan. You'll remember at the foot of the mountain, God said to Israel, hey, I'm going to make of you a nation of priests. Which means the rest of the world was to be the congregation, to hear the good news. And then in the New Testament, we are called a priesthood of believers. We join in to that category. Wherever we are, scattered about. Wherever you find the word of God, you find part of the tribes being scattered about. The remnant of which we are a part. The book of James is going to be a how-to book. How do we live our lives? How do we wrestle with what it means to be a follower of Jesus? How do we treat one another? It's going to be hard on us. And it's going to be encouraging to us as well. But one thing I can guarantee you that any encounter with the Word of God is going to be transformative. So I invite you on this journey. Because now we know who James is. And we know to whom he's writing this book. 
and the reasons why he's writing it will become more and more clear as we make our way through this book. Thank you for listening to Island Recast. For more information, please go to gmpc.org. Singing uh, that song, and especially the verse uh, that he wins every battle, kind of caught me up short. I've lost a few battles, and I'm sure most of us have. But it reminds me of Romans 8.28, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called together according to his purposes. He takes my defeats and turns them into victories and uses them for his glory and for his honor. James the just was a man of prayer. He spent so much time on his knees praying for the Jewish community to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior that he developed calluses on his knees. They called him camel knees. But no good turn goes unpunished. He was martyred. Literally thrown from the top of the temple to the ground. But he didn't die. And so they picked up rocks and they stoned him. One of the early martyrs of the faith. Jesus said, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. In this world, you will have troubles. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It's never been more important for us to know not only who we are, but to whom we are speaking and to know what we believe and why it matters. And so I charge all of us to spend some time in James over the next several months. Read it. Sit down and read it in one setting, once or twice. Let it work in you. I can guarantee you that our time together will be profitable. And we will find ourselves being transformed by God's word.